Okay, we've been discussing the Datu Vivanga Sutta. And this Sutta opens when the Buddha has come to a Padarshad in which there is a young monk already living, staying the night there. And this young monk had gone forth out of faith in the Buddha and he was on his way trying to find the Buddha when the Buddha himself came to the Padarshad. But the young monk didn't recognize the Buddha. He had never seen the Buddha before. And so they just had a short conversation. And then the Buddha, without revealing his own identity, started to give him a teaching, a discourse on the theme of the six elements. First, the Buddha set up a kind of outline or table of contents of his discourse. And now he is explaining it at length. And the topic that he is explaining is what we call the four foundations, which are wisdom, truth, relinquishment, and peace. And first the Buddha takes the foundation of wisdom. And under this heading, he is explaining the six elements, which are the elements of earth, water, heat or fire, air, space, and consciousness. (coughs) And if we consider these six elements, we see that five of them are material, relating to rupa, form, or matter. The sixth element, the element of consciousness, is of course mental relating to mind. And now, in giving the explanation, the Buddha's objective is first to show the way to detachment from the material aspect of existence, from the body. Then he will steer or redirect the teaching towards detachment from the mental aspect, from consciousness. So he first takes up the four physical elements, beginning with the earth element, and he analyzes the earth element into the internal, that which relates to one's own physical body, and the external. Then as examples of the internal earth element, he takes the various solid parts of the physical body like the head hairs, body hairs, nails, teeth, skin, and so on, all the way through to large intestines, small intestines, stomach, feces, or whatever else internally is solid, solidified, and clung to. This is the internal earth element. And as I explained briefly last time, According to the Buddha's teaching, in any instance of matter, all four material elements are present. Even in the solid parts, like muscle and bone, there are all four elements. But the Buddha mentions these 20 parts simply because the earth element is more prominent in them, more noticeable. Then, to 
lead further to detachment from the earth element. He says, he makes a very important statement, both the internal earth element and the external earth element are simply the earth element. In other words, there's no hard and fast dividing line between the earth element in the body and the earth element externally. They both have the same quality of hardness, solidity, um, we say resistance, and there's a constant exchange going on of external element and internal element. The external earth element we take into the body through food when we eat our solid food, our rice and curries. <laughs> then we ingest that substance and what is in that substance? Actually all four elements but in the solid food most prominently the earth element. Then that food gets metabolized, it becomes part of what we call my body. So then the rice and curries become me. <laughs> and um, then there's a constant evacuation of waste from the physical body. That is, solid matter comes out and it's no longer me. <laughs> it's now external earth element. And so if we look at it with a very keen understanding, we could see that the earth element outside or inside, it's just the same earth element with the same quality of hardness or solidity, just earth element. And so the Buddha continues, when one sees it in this way as it actually is, with proper wisdom, then one understands this is not mine, I am not this, this is not myself. We take this body from the top of the head to the soles of the feet, thinking it's mine, what I am myself, but really it's just, you can say, a flowing structure made up of a constant input of matter from outside, discharging its own matter from the inside to the outside. And when the body dies, or when we die, then the body just disintegrates into the element and becomes just part of the external element. And so in this way, when you view the body with this principle as a kind of lens, then one sees the body is not mine, not I, not myself. And then the Buddha continues, when one sees it thus as it really is with proper wisdom, then one becomes disenchanted with the earth element. One is no longer sort of beguiled by the earth, by the elements when they combine into a body, thinking this is a lovely, beautiful body, this is a handsome body, I'm strong and healthy, or else, oh, I'm ugly, deformed, or I'm weak and helpless. But the body is just a combination of conditions, temporary elements, coming together, falling apart, and so there's no identification with the body. Okay, that's the earth element. Okay, the same thing 
conflicts basically with the water element. The Buddha enumerates the internal components of the water element, whatever there is that is water, watery, and clung to, then the liquid components, bile, phlegm, pus, blood, sweat, fat, tears, grease, and so on. Whatever else there is belonging to oneself, with what that is internal belonging to oneself, what is water and watery, that is called the internal water element. And I should mention here that though the parts that are enumerated are the same as those that are used for the asuba bhavana, for the contemplation of the so-called unattractiveness of the body, but here that aspect is not being emphasized. What is being emphasized here is the constitution of the body out of the physical elements, the material elements. And so here the Buddha mentions, I think there's 12, 12 types of liquid, liquid components of the body. And the purpose is to show that the liquid or water element in the body, the water element externally, are both just the water element. They both have that quality of flowing and the property of cohesion, adhering together. And so we are constantly undergoing exchange of the water element with the outside. When we're thirsty, then we drink water. Then external water element comes in and it becomes internal water element. When we sweat, then internal water element comes out from the body, becomes external element. And so when we see, understand the body in this way, then there comes this recognition of the selfless or empty nature of the body, and there comes this disenchantment with it and detachment from it. You want to add? Now the fire element or heat element. This is the element which has the property or function of warming the body. We know that we have a bodily temperature in Fahrenheit 98.6. If we get fever it goes up somewhat. But there's something in the body that keeps the body at that generally fixed degree of bodily heat, bodily temperature, that is the fire element or the heat element. And it's also through the heat element that the food gets digested, since it's the heat that oxidizes the food and affects the process of metabolism. And also it's believed that it's the heat element which causes the body to age, at least that contributes to it. Since I think when you take, I think the Indians came to this conclusion because you know if you take say fruit and you keep it cold, then it's preserved for a long time. But if you take the fruit and you put it out in the open where it's exposed to the heat, then it changes more quickly. So it's the heat which actually stimulates the process of oxidization and it's that oxidization which causes the fruit to age or to wither. And it's also for the same reason the heat element 
which causes or brings about the aging of the body. At any rate, that was the ancient Indian physiology. Then there is the external heat element, the heat of the sun, the heat of fires and so on. And the heat element externally, internally, they both have the same property and they're in the same relationship of conditionality. If it wasn't for the sun, for example, if the sun were to expire and go out, then all life on earth would disappear and there would be no heat element in the body. So the body, the heat element in the body depends on the heat element externally. In our own bodies are constantly emanating heat or dissipating heat into the outer environment. So you know if you have a crowded room, a room which is crowded with people, even if it's an air-conditioned room, then because there are many people with their bodies at the temperature of 90, almost 99 degrees, it will cause the temperature in the room to rise. Then the air element is the, that is the element which has the property of distension or motion. Distension is spreading, swelling, and motion. And here the Buddha enumerates different aspects of the air element according to the physiology of his time. There are winds that go up the body, winds that go down, winds in the stomach, winds in the bowels, winds that move through the limbs, in breathing, out breathing, and anything else internally which is air, airy, and clung to. This is the internal air element. Okay, so we have the internal air element, then naturally there's the external air element, which we have to breathe in. We breathe in the air, our bodies extract the oxygen from the air, and they give up the carbon dioxide from the blood into the lungs, from the lungs out, into the atmosphere. So we have this constant exchange of the air element going on between the inside and the outside. And so when we consider the air element in this way, then we can see that there's <laughs> no function or feature of the air element in the body that completely originates from the body itself. But the body is completely dependent on the external air element and it in turn gives up its own air element into the environment. And through the carbon dioxide we breathe out, then the plants take in this carbon dioxide and they give up their oxygen. So we have this symbiotic relationship between animal life, which uses the oxygen and gives up the carbon dioxide, and the plant life, which takes the carbon dioxide and gives up the oxygen. This is just a sort of modern scientific <laughs> interpretation of that. Then we come to the space element. The space element is the, we call it the material element, though it's not nothing substantial, but it's what is left when 
there's nothing occupying space. In other words, it's just empty space. And here the Buddha gives the examples of this. It's the what's in the holes of the airs, the nostrils, the opening of the mouth. Um, you could have the the digestive tract, the opening of the digestive tract. Whatever in the body is not occupied by any other tissues or organs is just the space element. And then externally, the space element is anything which is not occupied by a physical body. And so we have this external space element, this internal space element, and they have in common this feature of being simply the space element, just void, empty space. And so when you see the space element, as being really undifferentiated in its essential nature between internal and external, then one sees that the space element also is not mine, not I, not myself. Nobody can claim, (laughs) though many countries do, they say this is our territory. (laughs) Planes are not allowed to fly over our territory then they're claiming the space element is mine. But in reality, nobody can claim possession of the space element. It's just empty, void, vacuity. Okay, so we take these are the five material elements, we put them all together, and we have our physical body. And when we view the body in terms of the elements, then we see that there's nothing really substantial, solid, essential in the body that belongs to us, that we can say this is mine, what I truly am. But the body is just, we could say, a process, a continual process of physical events, material events, always arising, always changing, passing away. And eventually the body itself comes to an end at death, then we just give up this body and it disintegrates into the four primary elements and the space of the body just merges with the outer space and nothing left. (laughs) Yes, with the space I think we should also understand that this space cannot exist without uh, the other four elements. you want to get that a little closer to your understanding, you take a little black ink and make some drawings, and you see that these white lines which are caused are as important as the black lines. But if you remove both, then you have not anymore a space which is bound to the elements. Then it is the infinite space. And then it is a mental and not anymore bound to form, then yeah. So we could say this is kind of limited space. It's space exactly space. limited space. It's right? a limited space. Right. And the limited space we practically experience is that round thing which we look out. We look out here and we have here, with our eyes we have a limited space yeah. somehow. Yeah. Huh? And we experience <coughs> this in yeah. this way, that limited space. Yeah in which the air has played. Yeah. Huh? Yeah. 
Actually, what you said reminded me of something I heard just recently. There was in the United States a Tibetan Buddhist master, his name was Chogyang Trungpa. One time with his students, he took a sheet of white paper and he drew something like a bee-like object, like this. And he said, what is this? And they said, it's a bird flying. And he said, no, this is a picture of the sky with a bird in it. Because <laughs> usually we just focus on foreground and neglect the background. But the background is, without the background, there's no foreground. Okay, so now with this, at this point in the teaching, and you have to understand that this young monk, Pukusati, though he might be young, but he's no beginner in his spiritual development. As I mentioned last time, even before he met the Buddha, when he just started meditating on his own, he went very quickly to the fourth jhana, the fourth meditative absorption. And he had very sharp wisdom, very deep, penetrating mind. And so as the Buddha spoke, it's not like we're reading the sutta or listening to the sermon, but he's following word by word and penetrating each point that the Buddha is making. And so by the time the Buddha reaches this stage in the discourse, Pukusati has come to see and to understand the egoless or selfless nature of the physical element. Now the Buddha moves to the sixth element, which is consciousness. And he says, Okay, now the Buddha comes to the sixth element. Then there remains only consciousness, purified and bright. This, these terms, purified and bright, seem to point to the nature, the essential nature of consciousness as a kind of, you say, a luminosity, a pure luminosity through which we are able to cognize objects. Consciousness doesn't have any kind of solid nature like the physical elements that we could point to, but it is just this, a kind of brightness which lights up the field of experience. In a way it's like a light, but you don't see the light. The light is hidden behind the screen, but the light shines through a curtain and lights up everything in the room. And so this is the nature of consciousness. It has no form, no shape, no color, but it's, in a sense, it's empty of any kind of tangible or specific characteristic, except that it illuminates the objective field. But consciousness doesn't work alone. According to the Buddhist teaching, consciousness always works with three helpers, three assistants, which are the three main mental faculties. These are, whenever consciousness is aware of anything, knowing anything, 
there is always accompanying it some type of feeling, pleasant feeling, painful feeling, neutral feeling. There's always a perception of some object and there's some volition, some intention in regard to that object. And it is through these three mental functions that one can understand the presence of consciousness. Consciousness itself is somewhat difficult to pinpoint, but it shows up in the work of these mental functions. Okay, and so now the Buddha is going to show the consciousness element in terms of its associated feeling, the feeling that one that arises together with consciousness. <coughs> and I think the reason why he chooses feeling here rather than the other functions, first because feeling is more evident, more manifest than the other two but also primarily because feeling is the condition for craving, for tanha. One clings to pleasant feeling, one is repelled or upset or distressed by painful feeling, and one usually remains just blissfully unaware of neutral feeling. And so now the Buddha will highlight the function of consciousness by showing how consciousness arises together with feeling and also that through consciousness become, one becomes aware of one's feeling. So he says, what does one cognize with this consciousness? One cognizes pleasant one cognizes painful, one cognizes the feeling, the neutral feeling, which is neither painful nor pleasant. Now the Buddha is going to show, to break the attachment to feeling, he is going to show the conditioned nature of feeling. <coughs> because we usually become attached to feeling because we just don't become aware of the feeling itself. We buy into the feeling. We just sort of jump past the feelings and latch on to the objects, the things that cause those feelings. And so we build up our whole world about the people that make us feel happy and to give us enjoyment and the possessions that we desire that give us sensual pleasure. We feel upset by angry and disturbed by people who distress us, afflict our minds, and we feel upset and disappointed when things don't fulfill our expectations. And so we don't become aware of the feelings themselves but instead we jump past the feelings and build up a picture of the world in which feeling remains in the background. 
And so we don't become aware, we're, we don't recognize that our attachments, our resentments, our um, preferences, our favorites, the things we like and dislike, are rooted in this subjective experience of feeling. And so when we turn the attention back upon the feeling itself and see how feeling is something arising, conditioned by, brought about by outer conditions, and when we see that this feeling is just a conditioned event, something which arises and passes away, then the greed, the craving, the desire and resentment don't have anything to grasp onto. It's like you're holding on to something, imagining that it's solid, but it turns out that it's just maybe a picture in empty space that you're imagining. And so here the Buddha first takes, shows how feeling arises on a specific condition. The specific condition that feeling arises through is called contact. The Pali word pasta, it literally means touching. It's the contact between mind or consciousness and an object through the sense faculty. And when the consciousness contacts the object through the sense faculty, then there arises a feeling. It could be a pleasant feeling, could be a painful feeling, could be a neutral feeling. Already the potential for the feeling gets inherent in the contact. So some contacts will give up, will <coughs> sorry, some contacts will generate a pleasant feeling, some contacts a painful feeling, some contacts a neutral feeling. But whatever contact gives rise to whatever feeling, there's one thing we can say about all of these contacts. And what is that? The one thing we can say. It's in the sutta. They are all impermanent. The contact gets broken, the contact ends, and with the breaking of the contact, <coughs> the feeling which arose dependent on that contact, that comes to an end. So this is what the Buddha is explaining now to Fukusati, how okay, when one feels a pleasant feeling, one understands, I feel a pleasant feeling. One becomes aware of the feeling that one is experiencing. <coughs> one understands that with the cessation of the contact to be felt as pleasant, the corresponding feeling, that pleasant feeling, that ceases and subsides. It comes to an end. Similarly with the painful feeling, similarly with the neutral feeling. <coughs> And the Buddha illustrates this with the example of two sticks which are used to make a fire. 
Now, of course, we don't use fire sticks to make a fire anymore, but in those days, one takes the two fire sticks, one rubs them together until heat is generated, sparks are given off, then one can use the sparks to make a fire. But when one removes the sticks, then what happens to the heat? It disappears. And so too, in dependence on contact, there arises feeling. When the contact is broken, then the feeling comes to an end. <coughs> I think we should also mention that this contact is in the highest sense meant by indirect contact. In Maybe that's getting into a different area. Yeah, that, that is also important. <coughs> okay, so now the Buddha has given this exposition on contact and... Excuse me, my voice is... He's given this exposition on contact and feeling in order to show the conditioned nature of feeling so that this disciple, Pukusati, will become detached from feeling and will give up his craving and clinging to feeling. <coughs> now, as I mentioned, Pukusati, the disciple, was attainer and attainer of the fourth jhana, the fourth level of meditative, meditative absorption in which the mind becomes absorbed in this pure equanimity <coughs> in which there's no more disturbance or distress of painful feeling or even a pleasant feeling. But the mind is very bright, very pure, very calm, concentrated, and perfectly equanimous, not leaning towards the side of pleasure or the side of pain. <coughs> and so now the Buddha is aware of Pukusati's level of development. He puts up the teaching at the level of the fourth jhana, pointing to that equanimity of the jhana. And now he's going to show how to use this as a stepping stone to higher attainments and then how to use it as a stepping stone to complete liberation. <coughs> First, he praises this equanimity, showing how precious it is and how useful it can be for developing the mind to higher levels. He says, suppose a skilled goldsmith or his apprentice were to prepare a furnace, heat up the crucible, take some gold with tongs, put it into the crucible. Then he would heat up the gold, from time to time blowing on it, from time to time sprinkling water over it, from time to time standing back and just looking on. In this way, the gold would become perfectly refined rid of all faults, 
malleable, wieldy, and radiant. And so, with the gold in this condition, the goldsmith could use it to make any type of ornament he wants, whether a golden chain or earrings, a necklace or a garland. And so, the Buddha says, there remains only this equanimity, this pure equanimity of the fourth jhana, purified and bright, malleable, wieldy, and radiant. <coughs> okay, now we're going to get into some deep and difficult territory. <laughs> I'm sorry for those people who are relatively newcomers, <laughs> but this is it's not an introductory talk on Buddhism, but it is a very, we've been going through the Majjhima Nikaya Sutta by Sutta, and this is, I think, one of the deepest in the whole Pali Canon, particularly this portion right here. <coughs> okay, now the Buddha continues. If I were to direct this equanimity so purified and bright to the base of infinite space, and to develop my mind accordingly, then this equanimity, supported by that base, clinging to it, would remain for a very long time. If I were to direct this equanimity, so purified and bright, to the base of infinite consciousness, to the base of nothingness, to the base of neither perception nor non-perception, and to develop my mind accordingly, then this equanimity of mind, supported by that base, clinging to it, would remain for a very long time. Okay, now I'll explain what this means. Okay, beyond the fourth jhana, the fourth meditative absorption, there are four higher states of meditation in the field of samadhi, or concentration of mind. These are called the base of infinite space, the base of infinite consciousness, the base of nothingness, the base of neither perception nor non-perception. In each one, the mind becomes increasingly more refined. The grosser elements of consciousness are eliminated and the mind enters into this very lofty, formless dimension. Now these states of meditation, if they are mastered and developed, repeatedly developed, they can become the potent force which will bring rebirth into a realm of existence completely outside the domain of physical matter, the realm of existence which is called the Arupa Loka, the formless realm in which there is no matter, no substance, no form. And the existence in those realms is a pure state of consciousness in which the mind remains in this pure equanimity, this tranquility, for count for many, many aeons. They say life in the base of infinite space is 20,000 mahakalpas, great aeons. The base of 
I'm sorry, base of infinite space is 10,000 mana kalpas, base of infinite consciousness is 20,000 kalpas, base of nothingness is 40,000, I'm sorry, no, it's 20, 40, 60, 84,000. 20,000, 40,000, <coughs> 60,000, and 84,000 kalpas. And one kalpa is the length of time it takes for the universe to go from the Big Bang expanding out to its maximum point of expansion, then to contract again back to the infinite point of infinitesimal contraction. So 20,000 of those, <laughs> and we, <laughs> we can't even imagine the length of time for one Big Bang expansion and contraction. 20,000 of those, that's the minimal lifespan in the formless one. Beyond that is 40, 60, 80,000, 84,000 mahal And so when the Buddha says, if I were to develop my mind accordingly, then this equanimity of mind, supported by that base and clinging to it, would remain for a very long time. That one would go on existing for thousands and thousands of kalpas, great aeons in this pure and lofty sphere of rebirth, in which the mind is just this tranquil, unimaginably tranquil, calm, perfectly equanimous. And so now the Buddha has sort of stimulated the interest of his disciples by pointing out the benefit of developing the formless attainment. But now he's going to show the way to turn this meditation, this meditative state upon itself and examine it with insight in order to avoid rebirth into that realm and instead reach final nirvana right here and now. Because, this is the important point, if one is reborn into one of these realms but one doesn't have the essential insight or knowledge of the Dhamma, then after that long period of time comes to an end, what happens? Eventually one passes away and takes rebirth elsewhere. Maybe the next rebirth is into the human realm. <laughs> but if one is not careful in the human realm, then one could do evil actions which <coughs> can bring rebirth in the lower realm. <coughs> and so even though one achieves rebirth through the formless meditations into these very exalted spheres of rebirth, one is not yet liberated, not yet enlightened, not yet attaining a, a one who attains Nibbana. So now the Buddha, this is the most important paragraph, number 22. <coughs> He understands thus, <coughs> if I were to direct this equanimity so purified and bright to the base of infinite space, 
and to develop my mind according, accordingly, this would be conditioned. If I were to direct the equanimity, the mind, to the base of infinite consciousness, base of nothingness, base of neither perception nor non-perception, this would be conditioned. The Pali word here is sankata. <coughs> it's sankata, which means that it's something which is put together, something which is constructed, something which is fabricated or composed. And so, when, when one directs one's mind to that sphere of rebirth, these high spheres, one takes rebirth into that realm through the force of the mind, through that volition, that desire to be reborn there. And that volition, that desire, that intention, that is functioning as a productive condition for rebirth into that realm. But whatever arises through conditions, whatever is put together one time or another comes apart, dissolves. And so all of those spheres of rebirth are impermanent, transient, non-eternal. They're not yet the state of freedom from birth, old age, and death. <coughs> Thus what the Buddha is instructing Pukusati to do <coughs> is to develop those states and then to view them as conditions. And when one views them as conditions, then one doesn't have any desire for rebirth into the corresponding realm. In other words, the attachment to the state fades away and disappears. One is able to master the meditation and keep the mind in it, but then one draws the mind out of it and views the meditation, that meditative state, as just something arisen through conditions. And since it's risen through conditions, then one doesn't become attached to it, because one sees its unsatisfactory nature. It's put together, it comes apart. If one clings to it, it will give rise to a sphere of rebirth, but then that sphere of rebirth is not an ultimate deliverance, not the final refuge from suffering. So therefore the text continues. It's, even in English, really it's impossible to translate. Well, the Buddha says, when he sees in this way that these states are conditioned, he does not form any condition or generate any volition tending towards either being or non-being. In other words, when he sees that it's conditioned, he doesn't generate any desire to hold on to that state and to take rebirth into the corresponding realm. 
That's the absence of any volition tending towards bubble, towards being or existence. At the same time, he doesn't have any kind of aversion towards existence based on the idea that there's some kind of self to be annihilated. So his mind does not tend towards non-being, towards self-annihilation. But rather he remains poised in this condition, contemplating with insight the conditioned, impermanent nature of all of these meditative attainments without leaning either towards being or non-being. And as he does so, then the clinging to any state of being evaporates. It's given up. And when he clings, then there is no more agitation or thirsting. The word, the Pali word paritasati literally means thirsting. Here, just for ease, it's translated agitated. So he does not cling, then there's no more thirsting for existence. What does normal mean? Uh, he is draining the... Okay, so anyway, okay, so he's not thirsting or craving, without craving, you could say. And when craving or thirsting is completely removed, then he personally attains Nibbana, enlightenment, you could say. And he understands birth is destroyed, the holy life has been lived, what had to be done has been done, there is no more coming back to any state of being. <coughs> maybe that word sankata. Sankata, yes. Yeah. Sankata is very interesting also for those who are here, some people who are not there. Because the spot is sticking on. In English it would be the German. Eternally, that picks up other associations. It brings other associations, but the Put together zusammen So there you find that it is not satisfactory because it is zusammengesetzt. It is Sankata. also it's. When we have this sentence here, he does not form any condition or generate any volition. The Pali... It's very, very difficult to translate. The Pali verb is na-abhisankaroti, which means literally he doesn't compose, construct, put together. And from abhisankaroti you get the word sankara, that there's no forming or formations. And then the verb abhisanchetati or abhisanchetayati, from that you get chaitana, which is um, the word for volition.
And then the word Sankara is the noun which corresponds to Sankata. So we have the idea that everything conditioned Sankata is the product of acts of Abhisankaroti, of putting together, composing, constructing. And then Nibbana, Nirvana is called Asankata, which is what is unconditioned because it's something which is not composed, not constructed, not put together. So in Pali, all of these words, the terms, they link together. Then when you translate into English, all of those connections. German is quite Das Ungestaltete. Yeah, you're right. That's and then Gestaltet is Sankara. Yeah, yeah, okay. I do not really understand the benefit of the formulas less tame. Yeah. Because uh, why to make jewelry of the gold? Why can't we uh, only let the let the gold be the, the pure gold without making the jewelry of that more tame which are also dangerous because because yeah. uh, they may uh, they may have the danger that we yeah. might think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's an interesting question. This is why I think the Buddha has included them within his scheme of training. So he doesn't emphasize them especially. But I think the reason why they're included is because they were part of the ancient Indian yogic tradition which preceded the Buddha. And the yogis who were practicing before the time of the Buddha were developing these attainments and taking these to be the highest states, to be the final liberation. And so when the Buddha himself, before his enlightenment, when he went as a seeker, as a truth seeker, and he studied under the teachers, Alara Kalama, Uttaka Kamaputta, then he learned these attainments too and mastered them. And so I think when he was designing the structure of his teaching for the people of that period, he wanted to include all of the possible attainments that could be used as a basis for his own liberating path of insight. And so he wanted to include these two within the training. Uh, also maybe an answer to the those days in Indian logic. How is that true? Uh, because uh, there is a kind of parallel between this complexes. It's not, it's not either, yeah. you know? So there, I can see there is an answer that which all points to the total understanding of Sukhya. Yeah. Yeah. And I think without uh, the formless attainment, I do not know, but uh, maybe there is no possibility for the Patisambhidharnya. Maybe that has to be there to, to reflect on the final notions which we have. Yeah. Also it seems also that the Buddha himself found it necessary like to master all the different levels of consciousness. And also he encouraged, he praises those of his disciples who are able to master these attainments but without getting stuck in them. I'm sure that he emphasized that over and over again. And once you understand the principles of his teaching, the Four Noble Truths, the Three Signs, Impermanent Suffering, Non-Self, then one won't get stuck in them, won't become attached to them. And have a bearable life with you are. Yeah. Yeah. 
refining these uh, mentalities. Okay, any further questions about this? I know this is quite difficult, these points we're discussing, but if you want anything clarified or anything to comment on. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.